Good morning. At least a couple of you have gotten over that tryptophan hangover. Is that how you pronounce it? Tryptophan, tryptophan, whatever? I don't know. You should probably work on pronunciation before you hit the stage and start using words you don't know how to use, right? Hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's really good to see you. Uh, I hope you guys had uh, a good week, and, uh, and I hope today is going well as well. Hey, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to say especially uh, thank you for being here. We're really grateful that you're here. Um, it... it we as a as a as a church are committed to the teachings of Jesus and committed to uh, what he teaches us as a church. Um, but what he offers to us as believers, he offers to everyone. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, I want I, I hope that you would actually walk with us through this whole season of Advent over the next couple of weeks, because what we're gonna look at is the hope that that Jesus promises in his gospel uh, as we enter into this season of Advent. So I'm glad you're here. Hope you're here, or uh, hope you're, uh, uh, if you have any questions, you would uh, talk to us. We'd love to, to engage with you on those. We are starting this week in Advent, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at why this season in the church matters so much. And so today we'll start that, uh, but really each of these weeks over the next couple uh, connect together. And so I want to pray for you, and I ask you to pray for me uh, as the Lord would lead us into a, a season that I think would be deeply formational for us as a church. Deeply formational. Let's pray. God, would you form us as a people that know what it means to wait in hope. To wait in hope. Would you teach us what it means to lean forward, to live our lives right now in the, in, underneath the reality that you are coming again? And would you teach us to be a people that witness to, that, that proclaim the gospel by the way that we live in hope? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The season of Advent is a fundamentally eschatological season. Now, why do I use that word besides the fact that I like long words? I use the word eschatological because that's the theological term that talks about what it means for our, our theology, our understanding of God to be framed not just in a, uh, in a myopic, me-centered, now-centered moment, but actually to look towards the future. Eschatology talks about leaning forward to what will happen and what is to come. So we are a forward-facing faith. Because we believe that there are things that God has promised to do that have not yet happened, and yet because we know they will happen, they shape today. That's what Advent is about. It is about the church learning from the prophets of old what it means to wait for Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, in, in the Old Testament, there was promises and prophecies given that Messiah would come and rescue his people. And the people of Israel lived in the longing and the waiting and the expectation that one day Messiah would appear but he hadn't yet come. Advent is a moment in which we join them in waiting. Not waiting for his first coming, he has come. The thing that they waited for has happened, but there is a new coming, a, another coming, a second coming that we wait for. And as they waited and that promise was fulfilled, we wait and that promise will be fulfilled. That is what Advent is, is it's teaching us to be people of the future. To be people of future Hope. Now, there are two different threats this morning. 
I want to name them, and I want you to recognize maybe where this threat hits you. There's, there's one threat for those of us that have grown up in the church, grown up in the Christian faith, uh, have, have been around this a while. We've done Advent before. There's a, there's a threat of over-familiarity. In other words, we take for granted deep truths because we've heard them so many times. But we've heard them so many times that we've become inoculated to them. You, you know what I'm talking about? When you hear something so often and you've, you've engaged with this so often that it just, your heart gets numb to those truths. That's a real threat in this room today. There's another threat though. For some of you that this may be new or maybe you've come out of a worldview that is skeptical towards many of the things of the Christian faith. I want to say that there's a threat of a hasty dismissal, a hasty dismissal. As in, it sounds outlandish, and so we just push it out of hand without actually listening deeply. So here's what I want to say. To those of you that, that the threat is over-familiarity, and to those of you whose threat is the hasty dismissal, I want to ask you to lean in this morning. Not because I have wisdom to offer, but because Scripture has something to say to us today. You see, if there is something that unites humanity, it is the constant need for hope. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at human history and go that, and recognize that the, that the shared human experience is that we're longing for something to fix what we feel is broken. That we recognize there's something wrong with the world, there's something wrong with you at the least, and I think there's something even wrong with me. The question is, what's wrong? You see, for us to get to hope, we have to reckon with what actually is wrong. Some of you know my health history. Some of you don't. I, uh, at 27 years old, had a heart attack. Now, if you're not a medical professional, that's not supposed to happen. Um, you're not supposed to have them that early. And so what was interesting is they rushed, you, rushed me into the hospital, and I bounced from hospital to hospital talking to doctors, and they were all trying to figure out what happened. And they assumed that I'm a drug addict, and by the time I finally convinced them I wasn't, they tried to search for other problems. And, and they searched, and they searched, and they searched. They sent me to a research hospital, and they brought new doctors in, and I, I, felt, like a, uh, I felt like a guinea pig just being poked and prodded, and, and everybody's scratching their head, which is not something you like to see happen with your doctor. You don't like them scratching their head when you're the one in the bed. And they did not know what was happening. Eventually, they came back and they said, well, we have a diagnosis for you, and it's called essential thrombocytosis. It took me like five years to even know how to pronounce that word. Essential thrombocytosis, which essentially means in medical speak or in doctor speak, and if you're a doctor in the room and I'm a little off on this, please forgive me. Uh, it essentially means this. You had a heart attack and we don't know why. Not the most comforting diagnosis to get. You're broken. We don't know why. You see, a lot of my hope in that moment had been anchored on the fact that they'll be able to figure out what the problem is so that they can get me a solution. You see what I'm saying? You see, in our moment, there's a desperate need, not just to, in order to get to hope, there's a desperate need that we have to name what's wrong. We have to name what's wrong. And we live in a world in which this pursuit is constant. As a matter of fact, I think you could almost organize all of human history into the different ways in which humans have tried to identify the problem and offer solutions. To identify problems and offer solutions. Let's just look at a, a couple of the ways in which we've done this. I think humans have said that what's wrong with us, fundamentally, there are some that have said what's wrong with us is we don't know enough. 
We don't know enough. We, we just need more knowledge. And so we run to the sciences or we run to the philosophers. So for some of us, the, the run has been to Plato all the way to Foucault. We, we look at these philosophers. Tell us how to understand the world. Tell us how to understand ourselves. Tell us how to understand that crazy person next door. Help me know what's wrong and what the right move forward is. And for some, we run to science. That can be cosmological science, that can be medical science, that can be to some way in which if we just have the right data, we'll find hope. Others in the world say the problem fundamentally is that we're, it's the way we're organized. We're not organized enough or we're not led by the right person. And so what we do is we run to and place our hope in politics or civic institutions. We think that if we can get the right political system, the right political party, the right political leader in place then all of a sudden everything's going to be better. History is full of revolutions, counter-revolutions, elections, coups, campaigns, ideologies, and yet we seem just as dysfunctional as before. So others will say that's not our problem. Our problem is that we don't know who we are. Instead of receiving our identity from our creator, we feel this need to self-define and self-create. I define who I am. I get to tell you who I am, and I get to express who I am. I'm the creator of myself. So our culture tells us to find ourselves, define ourselves, express ourselves, and yet it feels like we become less and less ourselves as we do. Others would say that the problem is fundamentally that we have unfulfilled desires that we are craving machines, longing machines, and all we need to do is fill it up. So what are you hungry for? I'll give it to you. What do you want? Put it on a silver platter. What it is that you desire, you ought to chase because all desires are good and all desires are to be fulfilled. So we run to consumerism. We run to the autonomous self. You can't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want to do. And yet it feels like our culture is as empty as ever when we've had everything put in front of us. If there's ever been a moment in human history that had access to fill all those cravings, it's this moment. And yet it feels like we're even hungrier than before. See, how we frame the problem shapes where we go to find hope. So back to our original question, what really is our problem? Well, back into my story, we, uh, the, 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 the doctors kept working for a while. Glad they didn't give up. And they watched the way my body responded to different medicines and different treatments. And eventually they changed my diagnosis to an equally unpronounceable word, polycythemia vera. So I now have polycythemia vera. I don't know if that's supposed to make me feel better or not, but at least it told me what the problem was. They pointed to a genetic mutation. So I'm a mutant, yes. Uh, they, they pointed to a genetic mutation in which my, body, my bone marrow dysfunction it has, is full of dysfunction and overproduces cells that, I don't, that my blood doesn't need, overproduces platelets and red blood cells. So I have too much. My blood is thick, like my head. Um, they, they, they pointed to this as this, the problem. And so now all of a sudden we had new solutions. We had medicines, we had treatments, we had ways to go about this. And it gave me a little bit of relief thinking that we had nailed down what the problem was. I found that I began to hope in new approaches to a new diagnosis. Now, whether or not that was actually helpful for me 
or not, it points to the fact that we need to know what the problem is if we're going to know what the solution is. We need to know what's wrong with us if we're actually going to find any kind of hope, right? And so what we do is we turn to the scriptures, and I think the Bible, at the, at the risk of reductionism, would point to at least four things that are wrong with us that it wants to speak to. Those things being sin, suffering, death, and despair. Sin, suffering, death, and despair. Let's take them in order. Sin. The, the Bible would tell us we are not merely misguided, we are sinful. Now, that's a, that's a message that our world doesn't like to hear. We like to talk in, in the notion of pathology, that, that, I'm, that, that people are merely sick. They don't really deal with the fact that the sickness goes so deep that it actually comes out of us. The Bible would tell us that we are fundamentally sinful. Romans 3 says it this way. Paul says, what then? Are, are we Jews any better off? No, not all. Not, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, what he's saying is both the religious and the irreligious are under sin. He says, as, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. The problem is not your heart. The problem is my, well, the problem is your heart too, but the problem is my heart. I can't point out at other people and try to pass the blame, pass the buck. I have to recognize that I am sinful and broken and you are sinful and broken and the brokenness in this world that we experience is because of sin. The Bible also points to suffering. See, the Bible doesn't turn a blind eye to the things that we feel. Some of you brought this in the room this morning. Some of you came in this morning carrying deep wounds, deep burdens, deep pains. You carry these things heavy on your soul. We carry into the room disease. We carry loneliness. We carry betrayal. We carry injustice. We carry all the pain that comes with it. We also have the problem of death. I wish this was one we could skirt. I wish this was one we could bypass. I wish this wasn't one that hadn't touched every heart in this room, but whether or not it's been recent or it's been in the past, we've all been touched by death. The Bible doesn't pull away from the fact that death is our enemy. The Bible doesn't skirt away from the fact that death is a reality. And no amount of therapy, philosophy, or government action can get rid of it. But I think one of the problems that we struggle with the most is almost what all of these feed into, which is this problem of despair. Kierkegaard would say that it is the deepest pain the human soul can carry. Is that when we carry these other burdens so deeply that eventually we begin to lose hope itself. And we're driven to despair. I love that the Bible didn't turn a blind eye to this. I want to read this, the, a couple of verses out of Lamentations, not to be a Debbie Downer, not to, not to simply try to suppress the room, but I want us to recognize that the Bible doesn't turn a blind eye away from this because Lamentations is written by one of the prophets of God given to Israel. God had told Jeremiah, I want you to speak 
to Israel of what I want to say to them. I want you to preach the good news of my gospel to them. I also want you to tell them that if they don't repent, I'm going to come in judgment. And that's in fact what happened. Israel did not repent and God came in judgment. And this is written as, as Jeremiah looks upon a nation and a people that he is both a part of and loves deeply, who is in deep pain. And he says these words, Lamentations 2 verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground. Because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. He continues in verse 13. What can I say for you? To what compare you? O daughter of Jerusalem, what can I liken you that I might may comfort you? O virgin daughter of Zion, for your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? The Bible doesn't turn a blind eye from the pain we carry. You see, a number of years after my initial diagnosis and second diagnosis, I had another event that led me to the hospital in which I was giving a new diagnosis. I I don't like collecting these things, but I guess I do. Uh, Congestive heart failure. Now, it's not active. Uh, it's 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 a passive thing, but I have a battery in my chest to keep my heart from quitting. Um, I take way more meds and way more pills every day than one ought to. I don't say that for sympathy. I don't say that to go woe is me. I say that to, to say that, that, that carrying these problems, carrying these things in ourselves drives us to a need for hope. And I've felt this in my own medical journey, this desire for a new treatment, a new medicine, something that can sustain, something that can give Hope And my tendency, friends, is to place hope in medical doctors. Now, if you're a medical doctor, thank you. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you do what you do. But if I place my hope in, medical, in the medical professional, I am doomed to be disappointed. When we take what we feel as a problem, and we run to the wrong thing for hope, we are doomed to be disappointed. You and I do this all the time. We think that our loneliness can be addressed or managed or maintained or, or, or confronted by this thing or that thing. We think that my lack of self, uh, self-understanding or, or self-actualization can be met this. We think what, that my sorrow can be mediated this way. We run to all kinds of fake saviors, fake hopes all the time. We put all these expectations on friends and family. We put all these expectations on ourself. But here's where the Bible speaks clearly to us. You're not the one that has to discover hope. You're not the one that has to create it. It's already been offered to you. This is why I want us to spend the rest of our time in this passage in Hebrews. You see, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but we know that he wrote it to Jewish believers, people that had come out of the Jewish uh, community that had placed their faith in Jesus. They have trusted in the good work of Jesus 
But these people were a marginalized people group. They weren't the ones with power. They weren't the ones that carried cultural clout. They were a diminished people. They were a marginalized people. They had no power. They were weak. And in many cases, they were a forgotten people. So God doesn't just speak hope to the powerful. He speaks hope to the weak. And Hebrews tells us that. See, the point of the book is to tell us who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he will do. Eschatological hope. So let's look at this. Turn to Hebrews 9. These are the verses that we read at the beginning, starting in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with a blood not his own. For then he would have to have had, he would have, uh, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it has been appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. See, what Hebrews points us to is as scripture says that our problem is sin, it tells us that our hope is in the fact that Jesus is the greater sacrifice, the greater redemption. And that redemption is found in his blood. Now Hebrews is steeped, like I said, in Old Testament Jewish understanding of the world and religion. It's, it's built, it's speaking to people that grew up in a tradition that is, that is alien to many of us. That in the the Jewish way of life, there was a regular pattern in which sin that we had committed each, each, each day, each week, each month, each year, eventually had to come, we had to come to the temple with an offering, a sacrifice in which blood would be spilt to cover our sin. There's this repeating pattern in which blood was shed to purify the temple and to purify the people that entered the temple. What Hebrews tells us is that those deaths of those animals were merely prophetic images pointing to one who would die once. In other words, Jesus is not crucified every time you sin. He's not re-crucified every time this happens. He died once, and that blood is sufficient to cover our sin. The promise of script, the promise of the gospel is that our sin, though the problem, has been dealt with on the cross by Jesus. If you trust Jesus, your sins are covered. They are forgiven. You have been cleansed. You are pure. You're redeemed by Christ's blood. 
The gospel addresses our suffering by promising recreation. I, I, I can't go into the detail here of, of verse 23, but verse 23 alludes to this, combin- this, this, this connection between the copies of the heavenly things and the heavenly things themselves. To, to reduce it down is to say there are things on this earth that are meant to point to greater realities and greater truths. But what scripture says is that one day, this world and all of its frailty and all of its brokenness will be remade and reformed. That we will be brought into an experience of a new heavens and a new earth. One that's not corrupted by sin. One that's not corrupted by cancer. One that's not corrupted by polycythemia vera and all the other kinds of uh, unpronounceable words out there. That we are promised a new place. Not that he's just going to abandon earth, cast it into some pit, but actually he's going to remake this world. He promised recreation. We see the promise of resurrection confronts the problem of death. You see, even in this world, we're going to die. Newsflash. Sorry, spoiler alert. Am I supposed to do that one? We're going to die. Unless the Lord comes back before that, all, each one of us are going to face death. The, the text tells us that. And yet that isn't the end. The scriptures tell us that we will be raised again, given new life. And those that are united to Christ are brought to eternal life and those that have rejected Christ to eternal death. But the scriptures point to resurrection as the hope that addresses the pain of death. And lastly, the point of despair. I want you to look again at these words. And starting in verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and then after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, listen to this, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, the promise of the scriptures is that God is present with us even now. He came once before as a human and took on human flesh and walked on this earth and he was present with his people. And then he ascended to heaven where he is alive right now, this moment at God's right hand, but he has given us his spirit to be present with us. And yet it says here that one day he's coming back to be with us forever. That actually the promise of the gospel is his eternal presence. Because see, when we're racked by despair, is there a lonelier feeling in the world? I can't think of one. That when I'm drained of all hope, I feel alone in the world. I feel alone in the universe. And to that problem, the gospel promises presence. That God himself is present with us and for us. See, our hope is not found in our actions, our solutions, our endeavors. Our hope is in what he has done and what he will do. See, the hope, the gospel hope, the hope of Advent, this waiting for Christ to return, is not a sitting around twiddling our thumbs and binging Netflix until he shows back up. 
It's not about trying to distract ourselves with just another viewing of elf and another, uh, another tree full of tinsel. It's not to try to distract ourselves. The season of Advent is a time for us to actually step right into the pain of the suffering that we carry and offer that to the Lord and say, come, Lord Jesus, as you came before, I rest in the fact that you'll come again. That's our hope. And no other fake hope that the world can give you can match that one. Because every other thing that the world promises you will fail. And those ways in which we try to bring our own hope, gather our own hope up, gird ourselves up in order to confront these things, we find ourselves weak and frail to make a dent. But he will finish what he started. So I'm asking you, frontline Yukon, might we let this season be a season in which we are formed to be people who wait for his return? And as we wait for his return, we wait in hope.